For those who look at a corporation because it's mindless, because it's soulless, because you can't imprison it, and they look at a corporation as really something that exists, that can be reformed and improved and allowed to move forward, then you see that sometimes the MPA and the MPA really sort of becomes uh, superior. Hi, this is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Nathan Chapping. In the wake of Arthur Anderson's conviction and collapse in 2003, the DOJ, and more recently the SEC, have turned to non- and deferred prosecution agreements as a means of achieving punishment and reform without imposing the so-called corporate death penalty of a trial conviction. With over 500 now in the books, nearly 20 of America's top 100 companies currently subject to an N or DPA, and annual recoveries from such agreements regularly exceeding $3 billion, N and DPAs have definitively reshaped corporate criminal liability. However, they have also generated fierce criticism. Are these an escape hatch for companies to pay their way out of criminal liability? Or are these necessary additions to the prosecutor's toolkit enabling aggressive structural reform not possible through a trial conviction? To explore the merits of and concerns with non-deferred prosecution agreements, I'm joined by Professors Andrew Boutros and Brandon Garrett. Professor Boutros is a lecturer in law at the University of Chicago, where he is entering his 11th consecutive year of teaching at the law school. He is the regional chair of Deckert's U.S. White Collar Practice and was formerly a federal prosecutor in the Financial Crimes and Special Prosecution section of the Chicago U.S. Attorney's Office, where he handled various cases of national and international significance and received recognitions from the government, law enforcement, and legal community. Professor Garrett is the L. Neal Williams, Jr. Professor of Law at Duke University where his research and teaching focuses on forensic science, eyewitness identification, corporate crime, constitutional rights and habeas corpus, and criminal justice policy. Professor Garrett is also the co-creator of the Corporate Prosecution Registry, a joint project of the Legal Data Lab at the University of Virginia School of Law and the Duke University School of Law. Professors Boutros and Garrett, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. It's a treat to talk corporate crime with you all on this podcast. Yes, good morning. Uh, Good to be with both of you. All right, so to get us started, Professor Garrett, are criminal charges and trial the typical response to the discovery of corporate wrongdoing? And if not, what alternatives do prosecutors have? In corporate cases, it's quite rare for there to be a trial, although there are trials. The Anderson trial was very well known. But increasingly, you know, over the past two decades, larger public companies have received deals, negotiated settlements, at least in part out of court. And there are a couple different ways they can do that. Uh, One well-known way is is, it's called a deferred prosecution agreement where the case is filed in court, but the Speedy Trial Act deadlines are waived or stayed. The case sits on the judge's docket for two or three years, but if the company complies with all the terms of the agreement, then the case is dismissed. And so there is no indictment, there is no conviction, there is no criminal record, the case is resolved. There is a limited judicial role in permitting this thing to stay on the judge's docket, but judges have taken a deferential attitude. They have not sort of policed the terms of these agreements, and appellate courts have, have emphasized that judges are not to do so. Uh, there are also non-prosecution agreements where nothing is filed in court. The agreement is to not prosecute the company, and if the company complies with all the terms, then, then nothing is ever filed in court. There are also some other different types of agreements. There are declinations where it's not just we decline to prosecute you, we think you're innocent, or we don't think that charges are supported. Instead, it's a declination agreement where maybe prosecutors say, well, we, we think charges might have been supported, but we're, we're declining to pursue anything because of your extensive cooperation as a company. And sometimes those agreements include some type of disgorgement or some type of monetary penalty, uh, but they're often simpler and brief. 
Uh, and there are even some other types of agreements that are quasi-civil or immunity deals as part of the antitrust leniency program. Uh, there's kind of a spectrum of these different types of corporate settlements. But the main takeaway is that they have lots of different terms that we can talk about, that there are a number of different flavors and terms used in the U.S. What they reflect is broad prosecutorial discretion and a lot of options that both creative prosecutors and companies have come up with to structure uh, these deals. All right, great. Thank you so much, Professor Garrett. So with that introduction now laid, I think we can turn to the focus of our episode, non- and deferred prosecution agreements. To anchor our discussion in a real case, I would like to talk through the upper big branch mine disaster and the non-prosecution agreement with Massey Energy Company that followed. Given the incoming Biden administration's commitment to strengthening and more aggressively enforcing environmental and workplace safety laws and regulations, as well as Massey's status as one of the most controversial NPAs, I think this will be a great way to get a sense of both the past and future of these agreements. To give a brief outline of the facts, in 2010, Massey Energy was the fourth largest coal producer by revenue in the United States and operated nearly 50 mines. As the Mine Safety and Health Administration would later uncover, for years Massey flagrantly disregarded safety regulations, even keeping two sets of books to hide the sheer volume of violations occurring each year at their facilities. On April 5, 2010, 29 of the 31 miners at the Upper Big Branch Mine in West Virginia died in a massive coal explosion. As a result, the Department of Labor and the United States Attorney's Office for the District of Western Virginia began investigating Massey under President Obama's directive to, quote, thoroughly investigate this tragedy and demand accountability. On December 6, 2011, the same day that the Department of Labor released its nearly 1,000-page scathing review of Massey's safety practices and culture, Attorney General Eric Holder and U.S. Attorney for the District of West Virginia, Booth Goodwin, announced that the U.S. would not criminally prosecute Massey, which had been acquired in the meantime by Alpha Natural Resources. While the government successfully convicted Massey's CEO, Don Blankenship, of misdemeanor conspiracy charges for the violations of federal mine and health safety standards, Neither Massey Energy nor its acquirer ever faced criminal charges for the explosion. Instead, the government entered into a non-prosecution agreement, which included over $200 million in fines as well as numerous safety and training provisions. The agreement concluded successfully in February 2014. So, professors, before digging into the Massey agreement, I want to first ask, why wasn't Massey prosecuted? When the government announced it would not be bringing charges, there was significant backlash among the public and academics. In particular, Professor David Ullman criticized the NPA, saying that, quote, the Justice Department did not live up to its name when it agreed not to prosecute Massey's for its crimes. With Massey's history of violations and a public outcry for criminal charges, why might the prosecutor have chosen to pursue an NPA instead of bringing charges? You know, Massey is really, as you've just indicated, Nathan, it's a really egregious set of facts. In many ways, it was regarded as the apotheosis, the sort of perfect example of corporate lawlessness. There was a view that the actions in question were not isolated, but it was pervasive and egregious. And so the department and, and even the White House came out very strong and said that everyone who is responsible for this would be held accountable. And so this was really, in, in some ways, a or in many ways, a test case to see how will these various agreements that Brandon just went through implemented or rolled out in this rather egregious fact pattern that took the lives of 29 people. At the end of the day, the department ultimately resolved the case through the use of a non-prosecution agreement. And as Professor Garrett was saying, a non-prosecution agreement is one where the defendant, the company, 
enters into a written agreement with the prosecutor outside of court. So it's a private agreement where the prosecuting entity says, or the prosecuting office says that they will not prosecute the company in exchange for certain things in return, certain conditions, such as payment of fines, you know, improved procedures or, or the like. And uh, Professor Ullman, uh, who has written extensively about this, uh, the Massey case, thought that this was, quite frankly, an abomination and sort of a dereliction of, of duty because he thought that the fact pattern was so egregious that if there was any case that screamed for punishment, um, it should be this case. Now, like a lot of things, you know, the details are important. As they say, sometimes God is in the details and so is the devil. And Massey was different than some other cases in that its viable assets were going to be sold to another company, Alpha, and it was going to stop... Uh, or cease uh, being in business. And as a result, I think that a lot was made out of the fact that it was no longer going to be a going concern and that the acquiring company that was going to take over Massey and its business and continue to operate the mines and, and, and have jobs uh, in the local community should not be punished for the sins and the errors of the company that it was acquiring. And so at the end of the day, Massey did receive this NPA. It was not criminally prosecuted in the traditional sense of the of the term in that it was not indicted. It was not forced to go to trial. It was not forced to plead guilty. And um, some people think that that was uh, an insufficient resolution for the seriousness of that particular event. Um, but I think that Massey continues to be a very interesting test case about was justice served, at least um, when the case was resolved in that fashion. And it really sort of brings up the debate about the interplay and the balance between punishment, right, punitive sort of actions and rehabilitation and deterrence. Yeah. And so I think we can understand why prosecutors didn't want to lay any type of punishment on top of a new company. I mean, in some ways, people who want something really harsh to happen to a company that commits a very serious crime, what well, could be harsher than terminating the company? And it wasn't, you know, the criminal prosecution that did it, but, you know, Massey ceased to exist. It got bought out and there was a leadership change. And so it wasn't like they just renamed the company just to have, you know, the associations with Massey ended, but they just sort of rebranded themselves like companies can do. This was, you know, a, a different mine operator taking over and saying, we're going to do compliance right. I'm sure they've got a better price than they would have otherwise had the mine disaster not occurred. But, you know, but I think another odd thing about the criticism is, is like, well, let's say it had been labeled as a deferred prosecution agreement or a plea agreement. What difference does that make exactly? You know, each of those agreements would still involve a fine and, you know, some agreements to do compliance in the future. You know, I think we need to focus on like the substance, the terms of an agreement. The label doesn't matter that much, except to the extent that if it had been a plea agreement, the company would have had a criminal record and would have been in violation of probation. There could have been more serious consequences if there was recidivism. I could see how prosecutors, though, wouldn't want to go that way with a company that was really a new company. You, you can't say they weren't turning over a new leaf because it was, in fact, a, bought out by a new company. Now, many critics will say, well, come on, you know, you enter a lenient deal with the company, it pays a fine, probably not even a very big one, probably way under what the guidelines would recommend. That's often true. And so, you know, but you can't actually punish a company, you know, Giving a company a criminal record, what is that? You're giving an artificial entity a criminal record. If you want to punish someone who committed a criminal offense, you need to punish individuals. Individuals can be punished. Really, the goals of corporate prosecutions are largely utilitarian and civil. The idea is to do effective compliance, effective rehabilitation. Punishment goals, you do that 
by targeting individuals. That's certainly my view. And we'll talk more about this, but no one can say that they didn't target individuals in the Massey Cole investigation. If it was just a non-prosecution agreement and some kind of a lenient corporate deal, then you might, maybe you'd say, oh, wow, this is, this is you know, corporate homicide, an incredibly tragic event. Lots of evidence that the corporation was responsible for, you know, more than just negligent, reckless, deliberate indifference to the safety of its workers. Well, individuals were prosecuted and, you know, there have been concerns that, well, but sometimes they just prosecute some low level, you know, some, you know, supervisors in the mine, you know, they they weren't the ones who were, who were raking in the big profits. They were probably just following orders. So many of these cases, they don't really, they aren't able to connect evidence up to those at the top. Well, well this was a case where the CEO was prosecuted, Tom Blankenship, you know, couldn't be a better known name in the mining world of West Virginia. They they went after, you know, the, the head of Massey Cole, the CEO. I think some critics of corporate prosecutions in general might say, like, forget about corporations entirely. That's what Judge Rakoff tends to say. Like, don't bother prosecuting companies. Go after the CEOs. Go after the corporate leadership that's responsible for terrible misconduct. Well, that's what they did here. And so I think that's an interesting question. Like, wait a minute, is there something to criticize here? Or is this, in fact, a model case? Exactly what prosecutors should do for those critics who think that the focus should be on individual wrongdoing and not on corporate wrongdoing. Brandon, you know, one of, and, and I'm, I'm just sort of playing devil's advocate here. Some of the criticisms, though, that relate to the Massey resolution deal with two issues. One is there was no monitor that was put in place. And perhaps the answer to that is, well, there, there need not have been a monitor because, as you indicated and I mentioned as well, it was bought out by a new company and therefore there was, necess- there was not necessarily a concern of recidivism. But also number two, at the time that this agreement was entered into, the non-prosecution agreement, there was a lot of uncertainty in the law during this time about what role judges had in reviewing and approving these DPAs and specifically the exclusion of time under the speedy trial clock, 18 U.S.C. 3161. And um, some have said that the reason why the government decided not to go into court with a deferred prosecution agreement that would receive the imprimatur of the court was to avoid potentially the agreement being rejected by a federal judge and having that agreement really be scrutinized at a time in which it was unclear the role of the judiciary in that process. Some have also said that victims were really deprived of their opportunity under under the victim rights statutes uh, to come into federal court and be heard and express the, the pain and the grievances that was caused by, by Massey and the conduct here and that victims did not really get their fair shake or have their fair day in court because the parties enter into essentially an out-of-court settlement. I'm, I'm sort of channeling David Ullman no, I mean, it's certainly true. It's factual. Right? It's true that by deferred prosecution agreements, one of the few ways that Congress has changed the law in this area is that they made clear in a statute that if it's a deferred prosecution, victims have an opportunity to intervene and make themselves heard. And so they, they, they lost that opportunity when, they, when prosecutors went this way. Now, there's a question, well, if the victims got to be heard, then what? Would a judge have any obligation to review the agreement, scrutinize it more as a result? You know, since then, more appellate courts have really sort of tightened the screws and emphasized that judges are not to, you know, scrutinize the substance of these agreements. Largely, judges serve a rubber stamp role. I think that's wrong, and I've, you know, written and I've been involved in a little bit of amicus litigation on this topic. I think that the statute actually gives judges broad discretion to decide whether to approve these agreements or not. The statute doesn't limit the judge's discretion at all. But that's not not how the appellate judges have seen it, and they've been reluctant to intervene in these deals. Judges in general are, tend to be reluctant to, to intervene when parties at arm's length come to a settlement agreement. So 
I suspect even if judges, even if this unfortunate appellate case law didn't exist, judges still, their posture would tend to be deferential. So I'm not sure actually would have played out that differently and whether prosecutors really needed to be cautious in this case. But it certainly is a simpler procedure. And if they're worried about complications, then this is quicker. And if, you know, if prosecutors are figuring, like, we need to focus our time on all the individual cases we're bringing, including against the former CEO, kind of makes sense to, to focus your resources on those individual cases. And I think there, there's so many different goals of, of corporate investigations or prosecutions. You can't satisfy everyone, you know, especially with limited resources. You can't prosecute all the individuals and impose the maximum fine on the company and get cooperation from the company in your investigations of the individuals and involve victims and focus completely on compliance and fixing the company. Uh, you have to sort of choose your goals. You can't do everything at once. I tend to think it's best to focus on fixing the company, making sure it doesn't happen again, imposing the appropriate fine, compensating victims. And it, uh, I do also think that there's a lot the Department of Justice could do to, could, to make its approach towards these cases more, more coherent. But you know, I, I think I want one last thing is that in the environmental area, it has traditionally been far more uncommon to have non-prosecution agreements and deferred prosecution agreements because the thought is there's so much civil enforcement. If you're going to bring it criminal, bring it criminal. You know, the goal is punishment at that point or a serious, serious penalty against the company because there's so many civil alternatives. In this area, you know, workplace safety enforcement hasn't been as substantial as in the environmental area. And so there may be a need for more options, even in cases that go criminal. So we've now discussed some of why a prosecutor would offer such an agreement. But briefly looking to the other side of the table, while Massey is seen as unique for how egregious the facts and violations were, in the majority of corporate criminal liability cases, the corporation's alleged bad conduct is not nearly so blatant. In those instances, why would a corporation not seek its day in court to clear its name? Professor Boutros, what do the considerations look like on the corporation side? You could probably boil it down to two, two critical considerations. One is certainty in getting the process uh, behind the company and moving forward, uh, particularly for any publicly traded company. I think as we all know, and as the listeners know, uh, certainty, uncertainty is not good for its stock price and it's not good for Uncertainty is not good for management. It creates a lot of distractions and, and the consumption of resources and, and can be uh, there can be a lot of lost opportunity costs when, when management is distracted or looking at the, the rear view mirror as opposed to looking ahead of it. And, and, and therefore, companies often want to resolve cases early, as early as possible, and capture certainty. Related to that is also the collateral consequences. Companies want to avoid what could potentially be a parade of horribles that could befall it, particularly if the company is in a very regulated industry. Um, the more regulated the industry, think of healthcare, think of financial institutions, think of chemical companies, the more likely that there will be collateral consequences uh, on the company that could be seismic in nature and could in fact, be very uh, damaging to its ability to continue to do business. Imagine a government contractor that receives a certain amount or a large amount of revenue from the federal government. And all of a sudden, as a result of a conviction or a guilty plea, it is suspended or debarred, or it loses out on certain public contracts because perhaps it is viewed as presenting a risk to the government in terms of integrity risks. So in order to mitigate those concerns, what you have is sort of a, a corporate desire to enter into these deferred prosecution agreements and non-prosecution agreements as early as possible. Okay, great. Thank you. So I want to turn now to the terms of the Massey NPA itself. 
In the agreement, there were provisions, among others, for establishing a research trust for mine safety, a training school for mine management, and a $15 million payout to the families of each miner who died. As in Massey, in most cases, these agreements are not simply trying to punish the corporation, but actively seeking forward-looking change. And this ability to reform and reshape corporations' behavior and cultures is one of N and DPA's chief merits, according to their proponents. Professor Boutros, can you talk a little bit about this idea of structural reform prosecution and what it gives prosecutors and corporations that a criminal conviction seemingly does not? It's a very interesting dynamic because in many ways, you can frequently achieve more structural reforms through a DPA or an MPA than you can through a guilty plea. Um, There, for example, have been DPAs that have been entered into in the past where, as part of the agreement, a corporation or an organization has agreed to disband an entire unit or department of the organization. As part of a uh, resolution, a DPA or an MPA, some organizations have agreed to replace all of their management and put in a brand new management team. Those are two really sort of stark examples of things that sometimes can be achieved structurally within a corporation through a negotiated settlement or a negotiated resolution that might be much more difficult, if not unlikely to occur in the form of a guilty plea. And that really brings us back to where we started the conversation. You know, there's a famous expression or a famous line that corporations are such that there's no soul to damn and no body to be kicked, right? And what that means is that you can't put a company in prison. You can't arrest the company. You can't arrest an organization. So back to where we started, what is the point of criminally prosecuting a corporation? Is it in fact punishment? And how is that punishment different if you do a guilty plea or a trial than if you do a DPA or an MPA? Is the purpose more rehabilitation and compliance? In many ways, DPAs and MPAs actually afford prosecutors the ability to impose greater structural reform than could be achieved if there was a guilty plea, which in theory is supposed to be more punishment oriented. And so the, the, the DPA sort of offers this, this third option for their existence. It was really a binary choice. You either indict the company, charge the company, or you walk away. You do a, a declination or just sort of a complete walk away. Now you have this sort of third option, this middle ground of imposing some form of punishment, imposing some kind of monetary fine, imposing certain conditions, and where appropriate, requesting reform. And it is um, about sort of teaching a company to fish and feeding it for life, making sure that it doesn't commit the same uh, mistakes or crimes. Uh, Again, for those who look at a corporation because it's mindless, because it's soulless, because you can't imprison it, and they look at a corporation as really something that exists that can be reformed and improved and allowed to move forward, then you see that sometimes the PA and the MPA really sort of becomes uh, superior to a system where these organizations are dramatically punished and potentially put out of business back to the collateral consequences with a lot of potential negative impact on innocent third parties, such as maybe shareholders or even vendors or subcontractors or the community. You shut down a plant, you shut down a mine, and that might be the largest employer in the in the town, and all of those people lose their jobs. So it, it is it is structural reform is certainly a, a critical aspect of how to resolve it, and it, it does require sophistication on the part of the government and the parties to sit together and say what is best here and achieves the best outcome 
both you know taking into account different stakeholders um, and frankly balancing the different considerations of balance of uh, punishment and rehabilitation. Professor Garrett, continuing with this idea of using these agreements to reshape companies, I guess the next question is, how do we ensure companies actually comply with the terms of the structural reform? Can you talk about what compliance looks like in the corporate criminal liability setting? So yeah, so these agreements all speak to compliance. And you know, the goal is to just, like I was just mentioning, to make sure it doesn't happen again. You know, the challenges of monitoring within a company really depend on what it is that you're complying with. And sometimes the, the rule that you're complying with is sort of objective and simple, and you can monitor it using a machine. Sometimes it's more complicated, or it's just burdensome to go through every bank transaction. And you, even if you have automated ways of flagging transactions that raise the possibility of money laundering, you may be flagging millions of transactions a year, and you can't humanly go through all of them. And so compliance takes a real investment in systems and in and human power. We've talked about monitoring in some of these cases, but really the... My, very much the minority of these cases, prosecutors say, look, we're, we're just not convinced that you're on top of the challenge of monitoring the situation yourself. And so we're imposing an independent monitor, someone from the outside who will be supervising efforts to ensure uh, that your compliance systems are up to par and that you're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. A lot of that work has been outside the public eye. In most other contexts, the Department of Justice makes monitors reports public so people know how is it going at this company or police department or jail uh, there's a public interest in knowing whether these problems are being fixed. And in corporate cases, it has been extremely rare for the public to hear anything uh, that comes out of the monitoring process when it does occur. And it normally it doesn't. The company sort of promises to update prosecutors on compliance, and they leave it at that. Uh, so, you know, we, we don't know how well companies are actually rehabilitating. Uh, we also know that there are quite a few companies, some of our largest banks, other types of companies, that have been prosecuted multiple times. And so that suggests that their compliance problems are not being fixed the first time or the second time they enter into agreements with prosecutors. But I think there's a lot more to be said about how compliance should be done and how to make it involve objective testing and standards and, and not just sort of tell the company, do some best practices, you know, do some compliancy stuff and we'll call it a day. Unfortunately, in the past, compliance was often treated in a kind of a backhand way by, by prosecutors who really didn't have a compliance background or any research background. They didn't know how to actually set up a testing regime. They would sort of just leave it to companies to figure it out. And that, that hasn't worked well. You know, hopefully we'll see Department of Justice continue to move in the direction of actually trying to validate and audit compliance. So if companies are being given a credit and they're given an opportunity to fix their compliance, you can have some assurance that they're actually doing it well. Great. Thank you. So continuing with this idea of structural reform, but looking to the other side of the table, in negotiating these agreements, what terms, admissions, or details is a corporation focused on including or excluding from the agreement? And should we be concerned about how this dynamic plays out, especially that it plays out behind closed doors? For instance, critics noted that in the Massey NPA, its factual admissions were very limited, the agreement did not include a monitor, and it did not prevent Alpha from writing off a substantial portion of the fines as tax deductible. Professor Garrett, let's start with you. You know, there's been a longstanding concern that the terms of these agreements aren't that transparent to those of us in the public. The fine amounts aren't always what they seem. They may be tax deductible, or sometimes there's a press release saying it's a billion dollar fine, but in fact, it's crediting payments made to other regulators. And uh, so there are lots of concerns with how the fine amounts are calculated, but also whether the financial penalties are what they seem like when you read the fine print of these agreements. There's legislation introduced in Congress to 
require more transparency. You know, I think it would be a better practice for prosecutors to be clear on what the actual financial consequences are of these fines. But sometimes it's kind of in their interest to act like they've imposed a bigger fine than they have to sort of take credit for a billion dollar case when in fact it's it's not. The statements of facts have, have grown increasingly detailed over the years in these corporate settlements. And I think for the good reason that there's some more awareness that, look, if there's not a trial, the public has some right to know what the details were if there was serious corporate conduct. And often they don't name employees will be supervisor A, supervisor B, but increasingly they give a, a, a fairly detailed picture of what actually happened and why, why the company is being prosecuted. I think that's a good thing. In the past, you would have these agreements which said very little. Now, in the Massey case, the public did learn a lot about what happened because you had a criminal trial of the CEO with a lot of witnesses. There's a substantial trial record. Uh, And so I don't think that there's the same criticism there that the public didn't get to see what happened and what the evidence was. But it's it's an important concern in general that there's a lot about these settlements which, which make serious conduct that the public really should hear about, not particularly public. Totally understandable why a company would, would prefer to keep as much non-public as possible and uh, less understandable why prosecutors haven't sort of insisted that that far more be be disclosed in these settlements. And that said, over time, they, they have pushed quite a bit in that direction. Yeah, and I would echo that. I think I think from a, you know, speaking as a white collar criminal defense attorney, having represented lots of companies as well as individuals caught up in, in investigations and government prosecutions. Brandon is is absolutely right that the statement of facts is really a very critical point of negotiation, an area of focus between the government and the defense when they are trying to work out some kind of resolution. Because the statement of facts also, it, in a DPA, it's really a form of a sort of, the statement of facts is a form of a public allocution. And so the company is basically saying as a corporate entity, here are our admissions. Here is what we are agreeing happened here, and we're accepting responsibility for it. And as part of the agreement, there is routinely, and I think these days, uh, almost always, what's known as a muzzle clause, which prohibits the company or the organization from taking a position contrary to what they have admitted to in the factual basis. So as a result, the company is very mindful of that because frequently there is uh, either parallel or follow-on civil litigation that ensues after a deferred prosecution agreement or a non-prosecution agreement is entered. There can be securities class action lawsuits if you're dealing with a publicly traded company. Um, There have been instances in which competitors have filed actions challenging uh, the award of public contracts that may have been procured or awarded uh, to someone who's admitted to misconduct, say bribery. And so the company is very mindful that if it agrees to certain facts, it won't be able to necessarily challenge them in a subsequent legal proceeding, potentially civil litigation, but also could also be criminal, uh, subsequent criminal prosecution. I have written quite extensively about a concept known as carbon copy prosecutions, which is where a foreign government comes in and brings a follow-on action arising out of the same common nucleus of operative facts that the company admitted to in the criminal case, say, in, you know, uh, in the original criminal case. So, for example, where you would see that play out would be in a foreign bribery case, an FCPA case, where an American company admits to paying foreign bribes, let's just say, in Nigeria. 
uh, and it admits that it paid X amount of money to a foreign official in Nigeria in order to get a large public contract. Well, that company's admissions can be used against the company in Nigeria if the Nigerian prosecutors decided that they wanted to bring their own action under their own laws um, against the company because the corporation's actions both violate U.S. law and also violate the local national laws of the country where the the bribes took place. And so when you balance these considerations of follow-on civil cases, potential carbon copy, criminal prosecutions, uh, potentially SEC enforcement actions, securities class actions, the corporation is going to be incredibly, incredibly sensitive to the factual basis. And the factual basis of these agreements, indeed, with time, have become more sophisticated, lengthier, uh, more detailed. And as a result, there is a lot more exposure. And some will say that that is, whether intended or not, ongoing punishment for the company, because in addition to whatever criminal fine that it has to pay, in addition to the investigative costs, in addition to all the distractions that are associated with a large or or any, frankly, criminal prosecution and investigation, the company then has to deal with civil actions where it is not able to mount the full vigorous defense it would otherwise be able to mount, but for these muzzle provisions in these DPAs and MPAs. So the factual basis is unquestionably one of the uh, prime areas that are negotiated quite extensively. And uh, uh, Brandon also alluded to monitorship, uh, monitorships being an area of tremendous sensitivity. And just briefly on that, corporations, after a long, grueling investigation and prosecution where they've admitted now fault and have hoped to put this behind them, um, don't want to have to answer to a monitor who could very well sit as a super board of directors that could question the uh, the decision making of management and the board and the audit committee about certain transactions or certain directions of the, of the company. And so the company wants to be, as they say, one and done. They want to take their lumps, they want to take their hits, and then move on and work to get new business, as opposed to then have to deal with a monitor potentially for many years, where the monitor can second guess their judgment and, frankly, second guess the business judgment rule that they want to exercise. So I would say that those two in particular are probably the two most sensitive areas. So now rounding out our discussion of the life cycle of an N or DPA by looking at one term in particular, the Massey Agreement specifically gives the government sole power to determine if the NPA has been violated. Is this the norm for these agreements? And if so, are these terms generally enforced? Sure, yeah. So it is very much the norm that there are these strong breach provisions, which have strong terms that say, you know, if you do anything wrong, we can prosecute you and we can, statute of limitations will be waived. Doesn't matter if years have gone by. And there are very few agreements where companies negotiate something different where they say, well, it has to be a material breach or a handful of cases. Well, we'll have someone independent and sort of adjudicate as a mediator, whether we really breached or not. They just tend to have these strong terms. But that said, it's been very, very unusual that a company be held in breach Sometimes even when a company was found in breach, they then cooperated, including with investigations of other companies. So got so much credit for cooperation that the consequences weren't necessarily that great. And typically the remedy has been if the company is in breach, that the agreement just get extended so they have more time to bring themselves into compliance. And so you haven't seen prosecutors have a lot of appetite for treating companies as in breach or taking cases to trial or treating them as recidivists. And that's typically been what's happened. Great. So now that we've had a chance to describe these agreements and how they work, I want to start to dig into the normative questions. When the NPA concluded in 2014, Alpha announced, quote, 
We appreciate the trust that U.S. Attorney Booth Goodwin and his office had in Alpha to enter into the NPA, and we believe that the substantial safety achievements that Alpha has made these past two years have justified that trust. According to Alpha, those achievements included numerous partnerships and innovations resulting in new training, technological, and design developments in the field of mine safety. Though the agreement can't change the loss of life, this does seem like a success story. Yet, as we noted at the beginning of the show, both practitioners and academics have significant concerns with the government's use of N and DPAs. Perhaps using the Massey NPA as a starting point, Professor Garrett, what are some of these concerns? We've talked about the concern whether the company is paying enough of a financial penalty that would deter it from engaging in such misconduct in the future or send a message that you need to have compliance, you can't let these things happen. It's not a cost of doing business that you can just sort of take into account and keep doing what you're doing. There's the concern that the agreements don't sufficiently shape up the company, whether it's through compliance or leadership changes. There's the concern that individuals may not be held accountable. There's the concern about victims' rights, public's right to understand what happened, what was the misconduct. And there's the concern that there'd be some oversight, including judicial oversight, to make sure that whatever the terms of the agreement are, that they're implemented properly. And you know, the, the Massey case itself uh, does pretty well on, on these different dimensions, and, and there's some concerns. You know, there was no judge involved since it was a non-prosecution agreement. There wasn't a lot that the public learned or, or there's no role for victims in a case like that. Kind of hard to know whether compliance was taken seriously or whether the company did a good job of addressing these problems, including because it was a non-prosecution agreement. So there wasn't any record later of monitoring or submissions to the court or anything like that. We, we have no idea whether these problems were fixed or not. So, you know, there are both things to point to as, as examples of why this was was a really important case and why a lot of things went right. And then there's certainly plenty of concerns anytime you have the corporate deal structured in a way that it's really hard to evaluate. It's hard for the public to know really what what went on. Yeah, I would echo I would echo uh, what Brandon just said and, and really say, you know, it, it really comes down to when there are criticisms and Brandon really sort of ticked off a litany of of, of points of potential criticism with these agreements. You know, you can almost distill them into three buckets. One has to do with transparency. You know, the the process in which NPAs and DPAs, certainly NPAs, are uh, negotiated and resolved is, you know, not done in, a, in, in, any, in any public fashion. It's, it's really sort of oftentimes negotiated behind closed doors. You could say the same thing about the resolution of any criminal case. There's extensive negotiations, even for guilty pleas. But um, ultimately, those, those documents are filed and, and there's colloquies with the court and there are submissions and, and various, various safeguards that the federal rules of criminal procedure and local practice allow for that makes the process, some might say, more transparent. So one, one area of criticism, again, just at a high level, is, is transparency. Two is the process. You know, is a company getting a sweetheart deal? Is the company getting a better deal than another company? Are there, in fact, unwarranted sentencing disparities? Are the 3553A factors that courts are supposed to consider when sentencing a defendant, are those really being reflected in this agreement? So you have a a transparency issue, you have a process, sometimes criticism, and then last is, of course, the substantive result. Is this a fair outcome? Is this a good outcome? Was justice served? Who decides that justice is served or not served? Oftentimes, unless you have something like a a binding plea agreement on a judge, an 11C1C type of deal that is binding on the court where the parties agree to the sentence and the court, if it accepts the plea agreement, shall give that sentence that the parties have agreed to, 
a very unique feature of the of the federal rules of criminal procedure. In in virtually all other cases, it's left to the discretion of the judge, the discretion of the court. Uh, and as a society, we have a lot of trust, uh, correctly so, in our court system and in our judiciary. And in these DPAs and MPAs, where really the courts are are not playing a supervisory role, and where the courts, the appellate courts, have come in and said that they're really there to make sure that there's nothing improper or potentially unlawful about these agreements. For example, that the agreement is not negotiated with any account to prohibited consideration, race, religion, ethnicity, sexual orientation, that the agreements were not procured illegally through the payment of bribes or other type of misconduct. And that once a court is satisfied that there is no such type of malfeasance or chicanery, the court is supposed to accept these agreements. And so these agreements really remove uh, all the discretion away from the judiciary and pretty much move it into the executive branch and into the defense camp. And so outsiders who want to criticize these agreements will say, well, they don't involve an appropriate check and balance, which is the court, because the court has no supervisory role, has no monitoring role, and really is not engaged in any of the back and forth check and balances that might exist in in a guilty plea context. So I would say at a high level, those three buckets, transparency, process, and substance, are probably what I would distill the criticisms down to. So, Professor Boutros, given all of these concerns, I think the first question has to be, are these agreements even worth saving? And if they are, who can we turn to in addressing these concerns? In my view, I think the answer is yes, they should be here to stay because they do offer a healthy and an important sort of third option other than just simply the binary choice of prosecuting or declining. Because sometimes those types of decisions, that binary choice can be very blunt and it could be like, you know, carving roast beef with a screwdriver. It could be very bloody. And I say that um, as, as someone who's served as a federal prosecutor, someone who negotiated DPAs as a federal prosecutor, and someone who has done so as a defense attorney. And so I've seen it from both sides. And so I think that the, the DPA sort of paradigm is, is an important new area that I think has developed with time frankly, probably over the last 20 years is where this new sort of feature or this new instrument has really proliferated and and become much more common. But the question is, because this was done in a much more organic fashion, and because this was really done through negotiations with different prosecuting offices, some in in New York, some out of Washington, D.C., in the bond building out of Maine Justice and, and across the 93 U.S. Attorney's Offices, What you have is you sometimes now have what I'll call traditions or common practices um, or certain understandings, but there aren't formal rules. So what we don't have, unlike in cases that are, you know, criminal plea agreements that are governed by the criminal rules in the, in the world of DPAs and MPAs, there, there is no set of criminal rules, the federal rules of criminal procedure. The federal rules of criminal procedure don't speak to DPAs or MPAs. Uh, certainly not corporate ones. And so the, the question is, if, we, if there is a, in, an agreement or a consensus that these instruments are good, healthy options that should be used, you have the opportunity for reform or for additional guidance about when these agreements should be entered into, what these agreements should look like, how these agreements should be implemented across the country 
and not just, as Brandon says, in sophisticated uh, offices that are repeat players that deal with these agreements with frequency. How best to deal with um, things on the back end, such as monitorships or the potential for breach uh, and the like? What role, if any, should courts play in that process, the DPA and the MPA process, specifically the DPA process, since that's filed through the court? Again, it has happened over time very organically. Most criminal defense attorneys, white collar practitioners who practice in the space and have a lot of experience in the space probably feel more comfortable today with advising their clients about how they suspect um, the process will play out and, 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 and the rules of the road, uh, that sort of certainty that we talked about. Uh, they probably feel more comfortable today than they did 15 or 20 years ago when it was much more of the Wild West. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll use one quick example. Uh, when I was a young lawyer, um, it was very uh, normal for the government to insist on corporations waiving privilege or work product as part of these resolutions and insisting on, you know, various memoranda or factual interviews or various other pieces of work product that, frankly, the government um, should not have received. But, but that was sort of the practice early on um, uh, during this uh, as, the, as these agreements were developing. Um, there, were, there was a lot of uh, issues with that and an uproar about that. And, and long and short, very, after various, um, uh, after the US, after the Stein decision from the Second Circuit and, and after threats by Congress to, 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 to regulate the DOJ in this space dealing with, with waiver of the privilege, uh, DOJ self-regulated itself and imposed new policies and procedures about that process. Um, so that there would be um, less concern and, um, and, and less potential for abuse. Um, so that is sort of one prominent example of how these agreements and how the practice has evolved with time. And in that particular instance, there was self-regulation by DOJ. So um, I think once we get to, once there is, a, if, if, there, if and once there is agreement about, uh, yes, these agreements are good, then I think there are various ways to um, to really kind of either reform them, reform them, or to put clear parameters in place about how they should work and operate and when they should be used. All right. So turning now to you, Professor Garrett, looking at the ten years since Massey, have we seen significant changes or at least recognitions of these concerns by the executive branch? And looking forward, how might we best address these concerns? So. You know, we've seen changes to the guidelines that prosecutors used with their self-imposed policies at the federal level with every administration. Sometimes, you know, multiple changes are made over time during an administration. The uh, factors that prosecutors rely on in their memo, the, uh, the manual that all U.S. attorneys use, have been adapted over time in corporate cases. They have increasingly lengthy policies. Now, how well they follow them is another question for how they handle corporate prosecutions. And so I, I think we should absolutely expect that the Biden administration will make further changes to the policies. The Trump administration made a number of changes. There were changes made that were, created real differences in how corporate cases were handled, just as between the, the two terms of the Obama administration. So th there will be changes. Uh, each administration seems to want to put its stamp on it, on the corporate charging memos. Congress has done very little in this area. We, we discussed a Congress passed a 
provision saying that victims need to be notified in deferred prosecution cases. I and others have said, look, there needs to be just a separate Speedy Trial Act provision for corporations. There need to be rules for how you approve of and, and supervise as a federal judge a deferred prosecution agreement. And the Speedy Trial Act was never created with, with corporate cases in mind. And so I think that would be a real improvement and some thought could be put into how to design that well. Similarly, there, there, there should be separate provisions, statutory provisions, and also resources and some regulations for how probation is handled in corporate cases. You know, probation officers are used to, you know, checking in on someone's drug tests and the like, their electronic monitoring and um, federal probation in corporate cases is a very different thing. And sometimes judges appoint special masters and the like, since probation isn't really equipped for corporate cases, but it'd be better if probation was handling it. And then there'd be a more professional approach towards compliance in cases where companies plead guilty. Uh, bigger picture, I think that given the focus on compliance, prosecutors should be in- insisting that compliance be tested. And when you inevitably test people and organizations, you detect problems. And that's a good thing. Companies should be rewarded for disclosing self-critical information. They shouldn't be worried that they're going to get into trouble if they're doing testing in an improved way. That could also mean that we can have a sense of whether compliance is working and we should be requiring companies to share practices that are tested and that work. We have a problem now that like companies don't have no idea what best practices are exactly, except you know, different, you know, people selling their compliance services say that something works or something doesn't. You know, prosecutors should be operating as a clearinghouse, like a, you know, a good professional administrative agency would to make sure that assistants are being tested, that they work. And if compliance works, that should be the standard and other companies should be expected to do it. And they should have information shared with them on how to do it well. And so it, it should look more like what a professional administrative agency does to audit and to use that auditing to inform better practices that would benefit companies and the public. So that that's what a better regime would look like. It would probably take a, a real sort of corporate prosecutions office, department, division within the Department of Justice. We've seen that the most sort of professional and consistent work at the Department of Justice has been in division divisions which have sort of dedicated teams that do this work over time. Uh, the FCPA area is an example where you have a, a fairly large staff that, that's been working on these cases for a long time. They have expertise and there's continuity. Whereas in other areas of corporate prosecution practice, sort of cases come and go and it really changes from one administration to the next, how well they handle the cases, how many they handle, what they do with them. And so I think there's a lot that could be done to professionalize these cases and make them more evidence-based. And you know, we'll see, we haven't heard a lot from the transition team about what their priorities are with regard to corporate prosecution. So I think 2021 will be a really interesting year in this area. Before we wrap up, Professor Garrett, I want to make sure we get a chance to pitch your wonderful corporate prosecution registry. Now, there will be a link to the database in the podcast description, but Professor, would you mind giving us a quick overview of that resource? So for folks that are listening to these conversations and are interested in reading some of these agreements and getting a sense of what the documents look like, what the cases look like, what the fines look like, the Duke and UVA Corporate Prosecution Registry, that website, it's quite searchable. There are lots of different documents, and it's a great way to get a sense of not just patterns or trends over time, but just to read the read one of these deferred prosecution agreements or 10 of them and get a sense of what these cases look like. I've used that database. It's a it's a really powerful tool and a powerful database. And I think it's a tremendous public service for people who practice in the space that there's a, a essentially a, a depository where all of these various agreements can be located. So kudos, Brandon, to you and to your team for, for putting that together. And I certainly would echo that it's a it's a great resource that can be utilized and, and visited. 
Unfortunately, that's about all the time we have for this episode. Professors Boutros and Garrett, thank you so much for joining us on Briefly. It's been such a pleasure to have this discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you very much. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. Please follow us on Twitter at UshaiLRev and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. Thanks, and we'll see you soon for the next episode of Briefly Season 4.